Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Nice. Thank you. That was a pretty good horse. Was that a mare? Philly? Pole? A yearling? Gelding? A colt? A dam? A horse? Stallion? A pony? Do you know a lot more about horses after reading I do. And I was going to ask you if we could open up with a little definition, definitions with Chuck and Josh. I think we should. But do your do your thing first, well, and was, then we'll do that. It was just something I was just going to mention. Uncle Mo. All right, let's hear it. Uncle Mo is the favorite at the upcoming Breeders' Cup. By the time this comes out, the Breeders' Cup will have come and gone. Okay. Because it's November fourth and fifth, which is this weekend. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and Uncle Mo is the favorite for the Breeders' Cup, the real one, because you know, like uh, for something like a Breeders' Cup, and it's four or five, you know, the fourth and fifth, so two days. Right. Um, they're going to have like fifty races. Because on a race day, there's like usually like 10 to 13. Right. So they'll probably have 20. And the big one is the last one in this case. And the Breeders' Cup's going to be at Churchill's, Churchill Downs. Nice. In Kentucky, yeah. where they hold the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Mo's favorite. He's 5-2 choice by odds maker Mike Battaglia. <laughs> yeah. Who I had not heard of until <laughs> I read this article about Uncle Mo. But he scratched. I was going to see him at the Kentucky Derby. And he scratched with a liver problem, so he didn't make it to post. That's sad. And uh, I can't remember. I think Animal Kingdom ended up winning. But I went to the Kentucky Derby. You, me, and I did. And then we went to the Preakness. That's right. And after that, I was like, I have to know more about this. So I came back and started researching and wrote this article, How Thoroughbreds Work. And, that, and now at the next horse race you go to, you'll be the most obnoxious person there. <laughs> no, I'll keep my mouth shut. I bet a lot of people... Know a lot, and I bet a lot of people know nothing. Yeah, well, we at, were, the, at the big ones like that. Yeah, you. Well, yeah, you. You. I would say most of the people there know nothing at the big ones because it's just filled with tourists. Sure. And for some people, it's like, hey, it's, I come here every day. It's just another race day. Right. Get out of here. Right. But ultimately, and because of Perry Mutuel, Mutuel betting. Interesting. It's what it's Perry. <laughs> Uh, Perry Mutel, that's what it is. But it's a French word. Um, your odds go up and down depending on how many other people yeah. are betting on a horse or betting against it or whatever. So I imagine if you are like just one of those people where the Kentucky Derby is just another race day for you, you hate that day, the uh, first yeah. Saturday in May. You probably skip it. Maybe. Cause Cause unless you, like, got a, you got a line. Well, yeah, true. Yeah. His mutter's a mutter. Yeah. <laughs> So let's let's do your definition, Chuck. All right. A colt is a male under five years old. Philly is a female under five years old. Right. But from two, age two to age five. A yearling is either one or two years old. Okay. A foal is newborn. Yeah. Correct? And it's also a verb. Being foaled is being born. Right. Uh, a sire is the father, mm-hmm. which is a stallion. Yep. Stallion is an adult male horse. Over five years old, right? But also a stud if he's doing that for money, or appear, or is he a stud no matter what? He's a stud no matter what. That's what I like to think. And then a, <laughs> the dam, the D A M, is the female, uh-huh. which is a mare, right? And she is a breeder over five. Yeah. 
and she produces a if she produces a female, it's a broodmare, or is she a broodmare? She's a broodmare. Okay. So a broodmare and a stud are one and the same. But different breeds. Different genders. Or uh, genders, yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, but they are, like, it's that's all the act of doing it. <laughs> After that, when reproduction takes over, they become a sire and a dam. Okay. In relation to the foal. And a pony is just a small horse, which is yeah, very, has very disappointing. <laughs> yeah, well, unless you meet one, then you're like, I'm not at all disappointed by this Shetland pony. Yeah. Shetland ponies are awesome. All right, so that'll that'll help you out here going through this excellent article, I might add. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's very good. Well, I, I really, like, thoroughbred horses are really interesting. They're well, fairly new. And it's one of those that if you don't know anything about something, you can sit down in 30 minutes and read this and know a lot about something you never knew anything about, yeah. which is our goal. Yeah. All right, so let's go. Okay, well, um, like I said, thoroughbreds are pretty new. They just came about within the last, like, 300 or so years. Like, they're an entirely new breed. Did you know that? I do. <laughs> well, you want to talk about the beginning of them? Uh, yeah, The History of Thoroughbreds by Josh Clark. Uh, <laughs> every thoroughbred alive comes from one of three bl- uh, bloodlines, which is really remarkable. Right. Um, the uh, Well, let's here, you give me a little background, then we'll talk about the horses themselves. So uh, these, this breed has uh, three foundation sires, is what they're called, and they're so they're three stallions that all belong to the Oriental group. And the Oriental group uh, are Turks, Barbs, and uh, Arabians. Very fast. Like, these are the ones that you see in Lawrence of Arabia hauling through the desert. Exactly. Very um, muscular and fast. Yeah, exactly. Um, Light. Fairly light, too, right? Light, yeah. I thought you said like. I was like, how do you want me to finish that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we like them. Um, The Arabians, for at least a couple thousand years have been prized for um, their quickness and their courage. They're very courageous horses, so they... Um, war horses. They they serve as really good war horses, yeah. Um, and because they were quick and because Bedouin Sheikh used to like to make money however he, however he could, including wagers, they would be raced in match races. A match race is just one horse against one horse. Right. Um, and uh, in about... The 17th, the 18th century, the late 17th, early 18th century, three sires arrived in England, and those became the foundation sires for the thoroughbred breed. That's right. And uh, each one has a really cool story, if you ask me. I agree. In uh, 1688, um, Captain Robert Byerly mm-hmm. uh, captured a Turk, right. very fine-looking horse, from the Turkoman horse in the Middle East. Right, and the, uh, that's part of the Oriental group, the Turk, the Turkoman. That's it's an Oriental horse. Yeah, these are all Oriental horses, right? right. And they, um, he, he captured this in, in a battle in Hungary, and was like, you know what, this horse is really fast and it's really brave. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm taking it back to England. Right, and he did. Yeah, and uh, that was number one. Number two was that's in 1704, the, the, the Byerly Turk. Uh, and this was a stolen barb, another Oriental, obviously called the Darley Barb, or the Darley Arabian. Mm-hmm. Uh, purchased by Thomas Darley, and he was a diplomat to Syria. And he said, hey, I love that four-year-old colt, Mr. Uh, Bedouin Sheikh. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to purchase from you. And then the uh, Sheikh reneged 
And he said, well, I'm going to go steal it from you then if you're not going to give me the horse. And in, in Darley's um, defense, I believe he had paid for it already. So it well, wasn't yeah. just outright theft. It was He was claiming the horse he, he purchased. Right. He paid somebody to go steal it, and they smuggled it out through Turkey back to England. And that became the Darley Barb. So now the Darley Barb is there. And then uh, the third one was a little less interesting, but sort of interesting in an underdog sort of way. Yeah, in a Dickensian sort of way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Godolphin Arabian is from Yemen and uh, was given to uh, the King of France uh, uh, along with three other horses in 1724. I'm sorry, he was born in 1724. Mm-hmm. And being the King of France, he said, I shall set them free. And set these horses free. It ends up being a cart horse in Paris. Yeah. Which is kind of cool when you think about it. That this was like one of the three sires. Yeah. And uh, eventually was was bought and sold and bought and sold until it was finally purchased by the second Earl of uh, Godolphin in 1733. Right. And I guess that must have been a heck of a horse by that time. Yes. It had seen the ups and the downs. And so the these three horses were bred with English mares. Um and the the I guess the English horse that they were bred with was a lot bigger, a lot stronger, yeah, but a lot slower. And so you took these Oriental group horses and these English horses, uh, English draft horses maybe even, and what you had was a very strong, muscular but extremely quick horse, which was the thoroughbred breed. Dun da da. And so it's a three hundred year old breed of animal. Which yeah, which is really cool. And that that kind of um, enlightens us to a characteristic of the breed that from the very beginning, it's it's interacted with humans. Like it owes its origin to human interaction. I right? got some stats. Okay. What you get with a thoroughbred, Josh, if you want to throw down a couple of hundred bucks on one? Can you get a thoroughbred for 200 bucks? No, you can't. <laughs> well, you could, but you'd have to stand outside of the slaughterhouse and just offer uh, somebody. Okay. Spoiler alert. Uh, you're <laughs> going to get a horse that is weighs about 1,000 pounds, very light and fast, light bones. Yeah. Uh, will be 16 hands, which is... Uh, a hand is four inches. What you just said. So that's 64 inches. Uh, about 25 no, years 66 old. 66 inches. 64. <laughs> 64 inches. Uh, they'll live to be about 25. They can take about 150 strides per minute and race up to and over 40 miles an hour. Yeah, that's a cooking horse. And we should say that a horse is measured um, from the ground to its withers, which is a ridge right behind the shoulders. To its smithers? Withers. Oh. And you said that they can run 40 miles an hour. You know why they can run 40 miles an hour? Tell us. Because of its stride length. Let's talk about its stride length. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, The average stride length of a um, thoroughbred horse is 20 feet. Okay? That's long. So you say your Subaru... Is 15 feet long? My Subaru Outback is 15 feet long. So a stride length is the distance between, let's say, um, the moment the right hoof, right front hoof, any hoof, but let's say the right front hoof touches the ground to the, to the next point where that same hoof, that say the right hoof, touches the ground again. So on a thoroughbred, an average thoroughbred horse, it's 20 feet. That is long. That's very long. Longer than a Subaru wagon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then some other horses have had even longer stride lengths, like Man of War, who raced in, I think, 1919. Um, he had a stride length of 28 feet when he was in That's full gallop. That's crazy, eight and a half meters. That's right. 
that's really, really long. Um, and he was taller too, I guess, huh? Maybe. He was a very tall horse, yeah. And also, so you've got a stride length of 20 feet, right? Um, they can run up to 150 strides a minute, which means they can go up to 40 miles an hour. Yeah. But they can do this for like over a mile. Yeah. Which is amazing. And the reason that they can do this for over a mile is because they're freaks of nature as far as breeds go, breeds of animal go, right? They are. They have very special internal organs, uh, specifically a very large heart and a very efficient spleen. So while this heart is able to pump out 70, I'm sorry, circulate 75 gallons of blood a minute when running, that's a lot of blood. It is. The spleen all, all of a sudden says, you know what, I'm going to kick it into turbo and I'm going to, you know, get a bunch of oxygen-rich blood cells and shoot them all over the bloodstream. And in the end, it's going to increase the total red blood cell count uh, 35 to 65% of the so, total blood volume. So the the red blood cell count or percentage is normally 35. While it's running, it goes up to 65%. That's crazy. So it's just delivering oxygen to every part of it's the body. It's a running machine. And the thoroughbred has a couple of other um, unique characteristics as far as its run goes. All horses can only breathe through their nose. Did you know that? I did. Okay. I did not until I wrote this article. Um, and then they breathe in while their legs are extending, and then they exhale while when the legs come together on the ground. So it acts like a bellows. Yeah. So they're breathing in tons of oxygen very efficiently. And then its legs do something pretty spectacular. Well, its neck does first. Yeah, the neck moves in unison with the front legs, which is going to just give you more propulsion. Yeah, it's like and then up and down. You need to explain the rear hind legs. Okay, so Chuck and I had a little an, an atypical discussion because we normally <laughs> don't discuss things beforehand, but yeah. um, that the the back legs of a thoroughbred create a spring-like motion. They basically pump up and down, right, which gives the the horse a lot of thrust. It produces a lot of G's. Um, <laughs> Chuck showed me a video, the very same video I looked at to make sure that I knew what I was talking about when I read that and then, you know, wrote it, um, that it's not the legs necessarily just staying in like a stiff up and down motion. It's the the overall motion that is being created by the legs, these spring-like back legs. Springing. Springing. What I noted about the hind legs is that they stay com- almost completely straight. So it's just like boing, boing, boing. Springing. Springing down, springing down. However you look at the track. it, the back legs create like a spring-like motion. Very much. That propels the horse forward. So that's why thoroughbreds are so prized for racing. That's right. Because they take all the speed and the agility of the Arabian and the strength and endurance of the English mares that they were bred with. Yeah. And you got the thoroughbreds. Got a very special horse. Uh, Josh, it wasn't just those three, as you point out, that uh, created the whole bloodline. There was a lot of hanky-panky going on with uh, Oriental group horses that were brought over during wartime from the Middle East. And they really helped the bloodline out, obviously. Yeah. But a lot of them were lost to history because... Maybe they had only female daughters, and that means that's the end of you, yep. or at least your bloodline. Or maybe you got it on with a different breed, 
and that means you're a dirty, dirty horse now, and <laughs> you can't be counted as a thoroughbred any longer. You could be, but your uh, offspring's not going to be. And even even if they say, all right, fine, I'll go back to the thoroughbred, they're like, nope, you did it with that other kind of horse, so you're done. No, I don't think so. Oh, what? No, it's just your offspring. Oh, okay. So, like, if if the horse never mated with uh, anything but non-thoroughbreds, then its bloodline's lost. I thought you were saying that if it no, no, it's mated not, it's at not all. counted out. Okay. Um, well, that's good to know because I thought that was a little harsh. Yeah, no, it's not like that. But all of that is based on a decision that was made in 1791 by a guy named James Weatherby who created this thing called the General Stud Book, and that is that all thoroughbreds are traced through the sire. Yeah. So they can be traced back through the to the three, and all thoroughbreds alive today can be traced back to those three foundation sires. And this general stud book is a closed registry, meaning only thoroughbred, full thoroughbred horses that are born to full thoroughbred parents can be included in this general stud book. That's right. And more than 100,000 are foaled worldwide every year, and so that's a lot of horses to keep track of. Right. And trace their lineage. Although, once you have it done... The first time, like, the general stud book serves as the mothership of which all other stud books are based. Right. So you've got the foundation there. You do. So it's not like you have to keep tracing back to the original three. No, once you can link it up to, say, the last one in in the general stud book. Exactly. It's last ancestor, then it takes over from there. So thank you, Weatherbees. Well, yeah, well, they still do that. The Weatherbees Limited is still an incorporated company in uh, the U.K. I bet they have a nice box there at Churchill Downs. Oh, yeah, they do. Or anywhere they want to go. Yeah, anywhere. (laughs) Um, uh, So, yeah, James Weatherby in 1791 was actually the second Weatherby. His uncle. um, Clem? No, also James. Oh, okay. He was the first secretary of the jockey club, and uh, he was hired to keep track of purses, Chuck. What's a purse? Well, a purse, <laughs> a purse is the winnings, the the total uh, amount of money that a a horse can win for its owner. I should say horses traditionally don't get to keep the money themselves; it goes to the owners. Yeah, uh, who in turn pay the jockeys and all those other people. Um, but the uh, the the first James Weatherby was hired in 1770. Um, to basically keep the books for the jockey club. So the Weatherbees are like a family, a long line of accountants, basically. And the reason why uh, the first James Weatherby was hired was because he um, he was hanging around at a time when they really needed to start keeping track of the incredible sums of money that were being bet on these races. Yeah, what happened was they... You know, as soon as two rich people get something fast, they're going to want to race against each other. <laughs> right. And so that's what happened. And they were just like, let me race my horse against yours. Yep. And then that became like, well, let's have a few races and let's add even more horses. And horse racing very organically, thoroughbred racing was very organically born. And like you said, then once things are racing, some dude's going to want to bet. And then all of a sudden, it's a huge cottage industry that the Weatherbees were put in charge of. Yeah, exactly. Back in 1770 when he was hired, the purses were reaching something like 2,000 pounds. A lot sterling. of dough. It's a, a lot, a lot. I didn't see a, a conversion for today's dollars, but... It's a lot I, of pounds. Yeah, it's a lot. So uh, they hired the Weatherbees, and um, ultimately James Weatherby the Younger created the General Stud Book, which, like you said, uh, is like the central stud book for all the others. America has its own. 
Um, the American stud book goes back to 1868. And um, thoroughbreds in America go back far, far um, earlier than that. Yeah, 1730, I think, was the first one. Yeah, Bull Rock, which is a pretty cool name. That's a heck of a stallion. Yeah. Old Bull Rock. So Bull Rock was here, and apparently there was um, horse racing on uh, Long Island as far back as the late 17th century. Oh, really? Yeah, but... Thoroughbreds' uh, bloodlines are, are and are kept such such exact records are kept of the bloodlines that they basically said, "You guys had a civil war. We're not sure of your records any longer. Yeah. Start over." So the American Stud Book goes back to 1868, and that's it. It's the as far as anybody's concerned, the beginning of thoroughbred horses in America. Yeah, and then the, in 1913, the Jockey Club passed the Jersey Act, which basically said. A lot of these American horses don't count because unless you're in these other books, then you can prove that. Then, uh, then you're SOL. Right. If your parents don't show up in other general stud books, right, that were previously published, then whatever. And since there was a break in the records, a lot of American horses couldn't get in there. That's right. Until 1949, and they felt bad for them and says, <laughs> "You know what? We're going to let you in, right. and you're now in the stud book." So, if the stud book says who who's in and who's out. And the jockey club controls the stud book. That means that the jockey club basically defines what a thoroughbred horse is. Yeah. And when I say basically, I mean in every single sense of the word. Sure. So color. There's nine colors they to a cover, horse coat. They cover everything, though, don't they? Like what colors are horses that aren't listed is what I wondered. Any kind of neon is, is <laughs> left out. They also determine uh, whether the name is appropriate, which, uh, you know, you've seen some pretty silly horse names, but you notice that you've never seen one that was a slur, like a racial slur, social slur. No. Never one that's offensive. Uh, never one that was named after someone famous unless they said, hey, you should name this after me, the W.C. Fields. Well, no, if, you're, if they're alive still. Oh, I thought they had to have consent. You, of a living famous person. I but think you, you can't can get name consent from a dead person? No. Oh, interesting. Not without reanimation. Oh, I just thought like the estate could give consent or something. Maybe. But I think I, I think I remember seeing that part of the rules was if living. it's a live person. Interesting. Yeah. Uh and it cannot uh the name cannot consist of entirely of numbers, which <laughs> makes sense, I guess. But and you can't also name like um you can't name it after another winning horse traditionally. Yeah. Unless it's like a play on it. Like Seabiscuit was a son of like hardtack, I think, which yeah. are those that type of bread that sailors ate. But could you name one like tea biscuit? You could, but I'll bet everybody think you're a jerk. <laughs> tea biscuit nine zero nine three seventeen eight nine four. Well, and it says the jockey club has the final authority, so they might just shut that down on you know hinkiness alone. Yeah, and they can say name your horse whatever you want, but it's not coming in the registry. And you're like, okay, all right, all right, all right, <laughs> right. all right, I'll let you. Tell All right, Josh, we were, uh, we were talking about purses, and it is big money now. In the U.S. alone, in 2010, the gross purses uh, totaled more than a billion dollars. That was actually a pretty big decline. Well, not big, but there was, there was was it was worth more even earlier. Like 2004, 2005 was a huge peak yeah. for purses in the U.S. for horse racing, yeah. Well, that means if there's a lot of money to be won as a horse owner, that means there's a lot of money to be made as a horse owner and paid as a horse owner. Yep. It's very expensive. Yes. In fact, I looked into this when 
Remember when I wrote that article on unusual investments for yeah. Sunny Paper? Yeah. One of them was investing in horses. I remember. And uh, it didn't seem like a very good idea at the time. This is before the, the horse bubble, though. Oh, because of how much it costs to maintain a horse? You know, and just like you can buy into it without owning a horse, like almost like stock right. in these operations. Right. So there, the I think the problem is then would be like the per, the chance the percentage of a chance that you have of that particular horse really bringing home big money. Well, you've got the chances in here. 60 to 65% of all yearlings fold in a given year mm-hmm. will be trained to race, so almost all of them are trained to race. They're almost literally born to race. And only about 5% of those will win any kind of substantial purse. And I think you said, what is it, like 0.2% of that 65% will ever win a grade one Stakes race. And grade ones are the big ones, like the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness. 0.2%, man. That's very low. It is. Extremely low. Um, and, I mean, if you have a horse that wins, like, a daily race a couple of days a week, and it's forty grand, and it's just a reliable winning horse, yeah, you're still going to make some money off of it. But still, the, the big problem that all thoroughbred horse owners face is you have a very, very limited yeah. time. To race your horse. Like all prime athletes, except even shorter. Very much shorter. Cigar um, was a very long-lived or had a long racing life. Yeah. He was a he had 16 consecutive wins, but he raced until he was five. He was five when he raced. Um, so he, he raced even longer than just his fifth birthday. Um, but for the most part, like I mentioned, Man of War. Yeah. He raced like... 18 times, I believe, and it was over the course of like 1919 and 1920. It wasn't like two full years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he is one of the greatest racehorses of all time. Well, the window, I mean, just to be at that peak of physical condition, the window is just so small because mm-hmm. they're the best of the best. So if you drop off by, what, what are the lengths called? Like a, a head length or a, a furlong. A furlong. It's an eighth of a mile is a furlong. If you drop off by just a tini- the tiniest bit, you're mm-hmm. done. Yeah. So that's why uh, I guess most of the Colts and Phillies are two to three, even though all the Triple Crown races are three years old only, right? Yep. And, fact of the show, they're all born on, well, they're not all born, but they all have the same birthday to help keep track of bloodlines. Yeah. And what is that? Just January 1st. January 1st. But that means that the horses racing could potentially be 364 days apart from each other in age. But they're all considered one-year-old. But they're all considered one. Um, which is a problem if you are a horse uh, that's born on December 31st, yeah, uh, 2011. On January be, uh... 1st, 2012, you're considered one. Yeah. Um, and if you are going to race, you're going to have to race horses of your own age if for like the Kentucky Derby's only open to three-year-olds. So yeah, there's the other horses in your class have the same have a, a whole year's worth of training ahead of you, and yeah. they're going to dust you. Which means that if you are a uh, dam and you're pregnant and you're about to give birth on December 31st, your owners are probably injecting you with drugs that are going to keep <laughs> you from going into labor. Yeah. Yet another example of how humans have. Like always, uh, they play an interventionist role in the thoroughbred breed. And if you are a little baby born uh, foaled that's born in, let's say, June, 
Mm-hmm. You're not going to be very valuable. They want horses that are born probably in the first couple of months of the year. Right. Usually the first half of the year. Um, and there's, I guess here now we kind of reach like the, the somewhat depressing part. Well, yes. the extremely depressing part of thoroughbred racing. And why I don't go to horse or dog races any longer. Well, so we talked about injecting uh, dam with um, with drugs to keep her from going into labor. Um, the uh, If you're a sire, it might sound cool at first, right? But... Having a lot of sex. I'm sure it adds up. If you are, especially if you're um, a stud, if you're collecting stud fees... Um, that means that you're probably owned by a breeding syndicate mm-hmm. that just makes their money, like an investment group, um, that makes their money by by hiring you out for stud called covering. That's what it's called when horses do it. Yeah. Um, and they're going to make you do it very, very, very frequently. Yeah, as many as three females a day for six-month stretches for 20 years or more. Yeah. And uh, if things don't go well... Uh, you will be killed, slaughtered, for the most part. Uh, in Great Britain alone, in 2011, the uh, the Observer reported that almost 8,000 horses were slaughtered there in 2010, yeah. which was a 50% increase uh, over 2009. And they don't let you slaughter horses in the United States anymore since 2007, yeah. so we ship them to Canada to do it. Right, <laughs> and then in Canada, about two-thirds of all thoroughbred race horses... Um, are euthanized, slaughtered, or abandoned from racing. I'm sorry, not in Canada, but just in, in the United States. Um, after they retire. After they retire from racing. Yeah. Um, in Canada, about 120,000 horses, including thoroughbreds, not just thoroughbreds, were slaughtered in 2009. Um, so it's a big problem. And we actually yeah. know where this problem came from. You said it earlier, it's a horse bubble. Yeah, I mean, it was literally almost the exact same scenario as the housing bubble, except we didn't go out and kill houses. No. So basically what happened was um, a, there was a lot of money to be made in horses. People started um, getting their sires to cover more and more frequently, which means that more and more foals were born. And the the number of foals born in a given year is called the foal crop. Um, more and more foals meant the market was saturated, which meant that prices dropped finally normalized, which meant that there was a lot of, and I'm making quotes here because I don't actually think this, but surplus foals, yeah. which led to a an increase in slaughter, euthanasia, and just general like abandonment yeah. of foals that didn't quite meet the requirements, couldn't be sold very well, which meant the horse bubble burst, which is good in one way because it means that the breed is no longer being rampantly abused as it was a couple of years ago. Right. It also means that if you're an enthusiast or a breeder, that the breed itself is going to get better because apparently rampant reproduction led to kind of a decrease in emphasis in quantity over quality. Right. That's going to change. That's right. Um, But the problem is whether or not anybody will learn anything from it. Well, yeah, and the problem, too, is this breeding, very specific scientific breeding of this uh, horse is, even when they do it perfectly right, you've got a scenario where you've got a horse with very light bones, um, but you know this one writer said the heart of a locomotive and champagne glass ankles. Yeah. So as we all saw in 2006 when Barbaro, that was so sad. Very gruesomely uh, broke its foot. Um, His. They they tried to to 
fix it, but I think that was, I don't know. They didn't fix it. Euthanized in 2007. And then Eight Bells, uh, they just euthanized her right on the track, yep. which was very sad at Churchill Downs in 2008. So Animal Aid, if you want to look into organizations like that, mm-hmm. they do a good job. Uh, they documented 729 horses that were injured and euthanized in, uh, from March 2007 to August 11. And, uh, you know, depending on which way you fall on that fence, the information's out there. Yeah, there's also a ton of um, thoroughbred, and just horse in general, but there's a lot of thoroughbred rescue organizations that um, take in abandoned or retired or what whatever thoroughbred horses that aren't wanted any longer and care for them. Get one. Ride it around your property. Exactly. Real fast. Keep it as a uh, <laughs> as a watch horse. Yeah. Um, also, I want to mention something before anybody writes in. Um, January 1st is the universal birth date for um, thoroughbred horses in the Northern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's August 1st. And thoroughbred horses, lovely, lovely, lovely animals. They're beautiful. They are. Um, let's see. There's a pretty cool documentary. Uh, it's sad because uh, Barbaro's in it. Oh, man, it's sad. Um, it's called, I think, The First Saturday in May. It's a documentary about the Kentucky Derby and uh-huh. specifically the 2006 Kentucky Derby um, and all the horses that are starting to make their way toward it. It's really neat. Um, and then, of course, you can read my article on thoroughbreds. Uh, if you want to learn more about thoroughbreds, go read that article. Type in thoroughbreds. T-H-O-R-O-U-G-H-B-R-E-D-S in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com and that will bring up this article and I said handy search bar so it's time for listener mail. Josh, I'm going to call this uh, Cool Kid from Minnesota. This is from Gage. He has a cool name. Yeah, it's a pretty cool name. Uh, hey guys, I'm 15 years old. I am from Moose Lake, Minnesota where it is winter for about nine months out of the year. Uh, I play hockey, golf, and I water ski. See water skis in those three months. <laughs> uh, I'm in the tenth grade. I'm on track to be one of the youngest graduates in school history. Nice. People are starting to ask me what I want to do when I'm older. I usually say doctor because I find the human body and especially the brain extremely fascinating, mostly to save time in the explanation of what I really want to do. Guys, ever since the first episode, okay, maybe not the first, but for a long time, I have wanted to work for HowStuffWorks.com. So, neurologist or write for how stuff works? Yeah, go neurologist. I'm wondering what kind of qualifications I would need and if there's any way to get a leg up on the competition. I'm a major fan. I won't say biggest because I know you wouldn't believe me. But you two have been big role models for me, and I hopefully will continue to look up to you. (laughs) No pressure? Hopefully. (laughs) As long as we don't screw it up. So, uh, please write back with any advice, and good luck to you. I, I did write Gage back. Did you tell him that a good way to get a leg up over the competitions for his parents to give us money? Yeah. And then just to submit your letter and your portfolio and your little tryout article. It's really easy to get a job here. Or it was. Now we're not hiring a lot of full-time writers anymore, unfortunately. Well, what, can we, what advice can we give him? Uh, I think we should make him a, a blogger for Stuff You Should Know. Oh, that's a good idea. Huh. In fact... Our boss even mentioned, I showed him this email, he was like, yeah, what if we could get this kid some work? And I said, sure, he can blog for me. So what did he say? <laughs> it kind of died there, but it could be, it could be <laughs> resurrected if uh, if Gage was is up for something like that. I feel like you really just applied the pressure. Maybe so. All right, Gage, uh, let's get this ball rolling. Why don't you write us back after you hear this? 
and uh, take a nice little victory lap around your high school. Um, wearing a parka, because it's going to be cold. Um, and uh, if you think Gage should blog, we want to hear about it, right? I think you should, under the name Charles W. Bryant. If, uh, if you want to see if you can tell the difference between a Chuck blog and a Gage blog, let us know. Gage is better. We'll get this started. We'll figure out what shape it's going to take eventually. But just show us some support so Chuck can get out of blogging. Um, tweet to us. Maybe pound go gauge or something like that. Uh, that's SYSK Podcast. Um, you can uh, do something on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. And you can send us regular old emails at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?